Looking at almost all social trends, Britain uh, is in decline. We've been part of an experiment uh, that has gone terribly, horribly wrong. T.S. Eliot, obviously writing now some time ago, described the experiment like this. He says, we are the first society to attempt to live without reference to God. That's the experiment that our culture, that our society has undertaken. And this has resulted not only in an experiment on or in religion, but an experiment in morality itself, because of course the two are inextricably linked. If there is no absolute deity, if we get rid of all reference to God, then in time there becomes no reference point around which any morals can be based, and moral consensus in society gradually decays. All around. On today's news, in your Sunday papers, wherever you look today, you will see the result of the experiment that we've been uh, undertaking for the last however many years, you dare to say, of living without God, without reference to him. Nietzsche, the well-known philosopher, uh, may well have confidently argued that once men and women have got rid of the constraints of Christian morality, then he argued they would be truly free. The truth, it seems to me, is that we've never, ever been more enslaved. Our streets aren't safe. Our finances are on the edge. Our relationships are strained. Our children can't play alone. We live with the great fear of the future, what our society is becoming. Excuse me, is becoming. Each generation says here in our church, oh, I wouldn't want to be a child today. And my, the generation above me, says it about my generation, I say it about my children, and then we begin to postulate what kind of world will our children's children inherit. We recognise universally we are in this state of decay that this experiment has gone terribly long, uh, wrong. And all around us there are many people stressed out, burnt out, who feel they are all on their own. If this is freedom, someone's been lying. True? If this is freedom, if this is what it means to live free, to throw off constraints of a God or any sense of obligation to a moral code, then someone's been uh, lying. Could it be then that an ancient moral code has more to say today than it's ever had to say? Could it be that the Ten Commandments are more relevant now than we might have ever imagined? You see, for centuries... These uh, ten words have formed the foundation of our legal system. They've been enshrined at the heart of Parliament. They've lain at the very core of our civilization. But as we experiment all the more with life without God, they've inevitably lost their place in our culture. They've lost their place in our nation's psyche. Or have they? A recent survey of 1,200 young people aged between 15 to 35 found that most polled could name only around two of the ten. And when told what some of the others were, weren't best pleased about them. For all our effort, though, to get rid of God and to shake off any sense of a moral code, we can't and we haven't. We find ourselves appealing to them all of the time. 
In fact, even those who think that the words that Brian read some moments ago are so outdated that they have absolutely or almost no relevance to life today, to modern living, those people still quickly find themselves appealing to them far too often than they would admit. When their property is stolen, they immediately say, that's not fair, that's not right, that was mine, you can't take that, it belongs to me. Their insistence that it's wrong for someone to take their stuff expresses their belief at the end of the day in some kind of moral code. And if there is a moral code, then there must be some kind of moral being. If there was no moral being, there wouldn't be a moral code. And so when people say, you can't take that, it's mine, they are saying that somehow we do still believe in a code and we do still believe in a moral being. When people are lied to, they say, that's not fair, that's not right, you can't lie to me. Every time we say you can't lie, we're appealing to the truth. You can only lie if certain things are true, and there can only be truth if there is an absolute being who is true. In everyday, ordinary lives, whether they mean to or not, people appeal again and again and again to the existence of a moral code, and so affirm the existence of a supreme moral being. We can't help it. It's built into who we are. There's a true story about a Christian governor who was uh, preaching in the prison chapel. And he took as his theme the Ten Commandments. And at the end of his sermon, some of the prisoners came up to him and said, that's no good, is it? You can't possibly live by the Ten Commandments at the end of the 20th century as it was. So the governor put up a notice all over the prison, the Ten Commandments no longer need to be obeyed in this prison. First day a man came up and said, someone's stolen my pen. The next day someone came and said, someone's stolen his cigarettes. At the end of the week, the governor said to a young man, I'd like you to come tomorrow to my uh, uh, office for supper. Come at five o'clock. The supper will be so fantastic, I don't want you to to eat your evening meal and don't bother with breakfast or lunch either. It will be just the business. The young man turned up at five o'clock as he'd been told to discover that there were only a few crumbs left because the governor had started at four o'clock. The young man was furious. You can't live like this. You're the governor of the prison. You said come at five. I put my trust in what you said. I came at five. The governor simply said, but you're living by the Ten Commandments. This prison no longer lives by the Ten Commandments. By the end of the fortnight, by popular demand, over two-thirds of the prison uh, voted to bring the commandments back to regulate normal prison life. We think we've abandoned them. We think we can live without them. We act as if they have, we, the the glorious uh, society, cultural we, acts as if they have no relevance in our lives. But actually, they're just below the surface. There they are, almost all of the time. And as Christians, of course, we're not surprised by that, are we? Because God built them into the very fabric of creation. These ten words 
are built into the fabric of what it means to be a human being. They're essential and necessary for you, for me, for families, relationships, streets and communities. And that's the first thing that you notice in Exodus 20. I wonder if you uh, just have it open again in front of you, page uh, 77. Uh, Turn to it with me. Almost all the time, except one time, the Bible talks about uh, 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 these ten uh, things in Exodus 20. Not as the Ten Commandments, but simply as the Decalogue. Literally, the ten words. The ten words that came to us from heaven. Exodus 20, verse 2, that introduces uh, these ten words. And I want uh, us to notice again something that we've noted from time to time, but is as important here as it is anywhere else. I am the Lord, capitals, the Lord, your God. There are two Hebrew words for Lord in the Old Testament, Adonai and Yahweh. To distinguish between the two, modern translations like the NIV always use capitals when talking about Yahweh. You can read a note to that effect at the beginning of the Bible. Don't do that now or you'll stop listening to me, but do it later to prove that I'm not just fibbing about it. So that we can immediately think what's really being said here. Now Adonai simply means Lord, Master. Yahweh was God's special revelation of his name to his people. It was a unique reference to the one and only true God, the supreme being, the maker of heaven and earth. And so every time you see it in capitals, you know it's Yahweh, not just a God of some place, but the God of every place. The God of all time, the creator, the maker of the ends of the earth. In other words, verse 2 is saying, I am the Lord of all things, the Lord of all peoples, the Lord of every situation, of every time, the Lord from the beginning to the end. I am that Lord of all creation, of all peoples, and these ten words are from me. And therefore, if the Lord of all, the Lord of all peoples of every time issues these ten words. They are for all peoples of all time. What we have are not uh, uh, ten things for religious people. It's not ten things for Western people or for goody-goody people or for any other kind of people, but for all people because they come from the Lord of all the nations. So we shouldn't be surprised that they affect all people And somehow in the fabric of our lives, these words are looking just below the surface, even if we pretend they aren't there. Just like the prison. We live without these things, and we discover that we can't. We find ourselves day by day appealing to them without realising what we are doing. So these ten words then, what are are they? How, How should we understand them? I think the common... The common uh, perception is that here in these ten words, we have archaic rules given to oppress, given to restrict, by a ruler who seems to delight in regulation, who's a stickler for rules, who derives pleasure from people's conforming to them. It's the picture of the archetypal headmaster whose only theme is to tell us the rules and instill the fear of God should we dare to break the rules. 
The rules are there to keep us in place. The rules are there to keep us down, to keep us guilty. And so like many headmasters of old, God never seems happier than when he's lording over someone who's failed to keep the rules. Did you have a headmaster like that? You can all remember the names of your headmasters. And that's the kind of impression Many people, I think, have of these commands. They're about a a God who's into rules and into uh, hemming people in uh, and it's oppressive and it's restrictive. Verse 2 helps us to get the right impression. Because I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord your God and I'm not into rules, but I'm into rescue. Ten words that are about rescue, not rules. Think for a minute with me about the story of God as it unfolds in the Bible. He makes this beautiful world which is full, alive and very rich. Is it full of rules? No. It's not rules. It's relationship. A world about relationships, human relationships with God and human relationships with each other. And God said to them, in this fantastic world, go enjoy these relationships. Be free, enjoy, celebrate and flourish in the richness and beauty I have given you by multiplying and bearing fruit. There were no rules. Ah, except one. The tree of life. God said, don't eat that tree. Do what you like, eat what you like, go where you like, but not that one. Is this a life of rules? Is this a creation built on regulation and stipulation? Absolutely not. If anyone was fixated by rules, it was Adam and Eve. There was only one and they chose to mess with it. They chose to mess with the only rule, even though God had said the consequence of messing with that rule will be dire. And it was. They fell out with God. For the first time, human beings felt terribly alone. They felt uneasy, restless in themselves. And soon there was murder, lying, cheating, perversion of every kind. What had we done? A darkness had come. And soon you get one of the saddest verses in the Bible, a few pages on in the Genesis story. Genesis 6.6 The Lord was grieved. The Lord was grieved that he'd made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. That's God. He was grieved. Instead of obliterating us, which might have been our response, God chose in His love, His love that we could not stop coming to us, however much we hurt Him, however much pain we caused Him, however much grief there was in His heart, His love kept coming. And the rest of the Bible is all about him trying to rescue us, to bring us back to himself. And it's an amazing story, and you can read some of it in the readings that we'll be uh, doing together over these months. And the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, he's not the God of rules. He's the God of rescue. 
And if you start reading the plan, the story unfolds of how he called a a man to himself and then a nation to himself. And just when it looked like it was all going wrong, the, the nation was down in Egypt in slavery. What does God do? Does he send them a book of rules to get them out? No, he rescues them. He goes down to Egypt with Moses and he calls his people out, promising them a land flowing with milk and honey. And it's only after... Only after he's rescued them from Egypt, only after he's delivered them from the dead, uh, through the Red Sea, only after he's guided them day and night with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire like some kind of sat-nav system, after there's water from the rock and food each day, after he'd given them the land they were about to inherit, then God says, hey, as you go into this new land, as you have this new beginning, as you begin again, to try and be everything I wanted and I longed for you to be. When you get there, I want you to live as free and as abundantly as possible. I want you to enjoy what it is to be rescued. It's then God gives these ten things and says these are the things that will help you to enjoy what it is to be my rescued people. And as Moses was to say years later, this was what God was on God's heart. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. You see, sometimes we just make it all about rules. And we've missed it. We've missed God's heart. You imagine being lost at sea. Can't be much worse than being lost at sea, wondering if you're going to make it. And then a lifeboat crew risking their own lives comes out to you on the water. And eventually, after a lot of effort on their part, risking their own lives, they rescue you and they pull you into the boat and they wrap something warm around you and they welcome you aboard and they sit you down and they say, welcome to this place. You need to sit there, put that seatbelt on and keep your hands away from the ropes. You would not go to those lifeboat men, oh, this is all about rules, this lifeboat. I've got to sit down, got to put my belt on, can't touch the ropes. Your perspective would be entirely different. You would know that this lifeboat was all about rescue. That having been rescued, they wanted to keep you rescued. And they gave you the guidelines to keeping you safe while you made it back to shore. We need to understand that we've been rescued. And embrace the guidelines that we might stay safe in what God has given us. Yet so often, oh God, he's all about rules. Do this, do that, do the other. And we miss it. We've totally misunderstood the way the story unfolds. He's rescued us. And now he wants us to live well. That's why some writers call these the ten graces, the ten gifts from heaven. Without them we wither and we die. If it's uh, about rescue, not rules, it's also about revelation, not regulation. These ten things from heaven are not so much to regulate us as to reveal to us the kind of God he is and the kind of family we should be. You see, the phrase, do not commit adultery, is a revelation. 
It reveals what God is like. It reminds us that He's a God who values faithfulness and intimacy. He's a God whose love protects and doesn't violate. It's a love that gives, not takes. And so reveals what He is like and what we should be like. It helps us understand. It describes, as someone has helpfully uh, uh, called these verses, it describes the family sayings. These sayings are the kind of family we should be. In our home, we use the phrase from time to time, usually in the negative, unfortunately, we are not that kind of family. So our kids or even the adults are bickering and arguing. Uh, and we'll sit down and we'll say to one another, look, out there in the world, people will knock you down. People will be unkind to you. People will uh, uh, pull you when they should lift you. People will criticise you when they should encourage you. In here, it'll going to be different. We're not that kind of family. What are we doing? Are we creating rules? No. We're trying as best we can to establish in our micro-community Values that will help us function and flourish as a family. These ten words are like that. As they enter this new land, as they begin this new life, these words are saying, this is the kind of God we have, this is the kind of family that we are. A family where God is at the centre, where He alone gets our ultimate allegiance, where He is honoured, and so where others are honoured, where faithfulness, honesty, integrity and respect matter most, where they're fostered, celebrated and enjoyed. Because that's the kind of family we are. And if these words are about rescue, and if they're about revelation, they're undoubtedly about, as I've said already, relationship. Relationship. You see, it's all about our relationship. The first four are about our relationship with God. The next six are about our relationship with everyone else. Human beings were made for relationship. God is a relational being. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And He made us in His image to be like Him. We do not work. We do not function without our relationships. It is true that the better our relationships, the greater our freedom. And so what does God do? He gives us these things to protect that which matters most. To protect our relationships. As He rescued them for a new beginning, as He gave them a land full of riches, was He looking to see how He could restrict them, oppress them with rules and regulations? No, He was offering them gifts to help them flourish. To protect the very thing that would make them most alive the very thing that would give them greatest freedom. So these words are all about relationships, keeping them strong, keeping them alive, keeping them central. And that's what our faith is all about, isn't it? It's not about obeying some rules. That's what so easily we reduce Christianity down to. If you took a survey outside, what's a Christian? Someone who goes to church and tries to do good sorts of things. As if our faith is all about trying to do a list of do's and don'ts. It was that mistake that Jesus went ballistic with the Pharisees for. Because they were all about the rules. And they'd lost sight of the relationship. See, the Christian life is not about following some highway code. It's about getting in a relationship with God and journeying with Him. Now these ten words are essential for the journey. They're the highway code of the journey but not the journey itself. Again, it's like in our family. It's like in your family, all our families. If our children grow up, 
and think that family life is about a list of do's and don'ts, that family life is all about keeping rules, tidying bedrooms, going to bed on time, whatever it might be. If those things define family life, the whole thing would have been a catastrophic failure. You see, I want family life to be defined as relationship, love, support, commitment, encouragement, being in it together, laughing together, crying together. Yeah, we need some regulation. We need some rules, if you like, to help us foster and maintain the relationship. But what a catastrophe if those rules become the defining marker of what our family life is all about. If your Christian life or mine becomes defined by the rules rather than the relationship, then we've missed what these words are all about. I'd like you to turn with me, just as I close, to page 1042 in the Pew Bibles, to Luke chapter 10, to the words of Jesus. 10, uh, Luke 10, 25, uh, page 1042. Uh, An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, with his characteristic brilliance, asks him a question. And the question is all about the commands. What do you make of the commands, he's saying? What is written in the law? How do you read it? That's Jesus' question. How do you understand the commands? What do you make of them? Listen to the man's reply. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and love your neighbour as yourself. He's asked how he understands the commands. And the man answers Jesus by saying the commands are all about relationship with God and with one another. Not rules, not regulation. He's a lawyer so he loves rules. He loves regulation. He loves restriction. He loves all the pointless detail that normal people think is pointless anyway. But he says, no, it's not about that. It's about relationship. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. If we're pleased with how well we're obeying the rules, but our relationships with God and or with others are poor, we've missed it. But if our relationships are strong, they will only be as these ten words from heaven take greater and deeper root at the core of our lives. Let's pray.